Hi friends, welcome back to Millennials Bully. I know it's been a while, but I haven't forgotten. We are back with a special green series. A lot has been said about us millennials being green, but is there a case to be made that millennials are actually green aware? Now we will be exploring this and all things green in this series with a host of green. Hi listeners, welcome to the Green Series. To kick us off of this series, I speak to the celebrated Dr. Renard Sue. Renard is a sustainability and climate specialist. He is also better known as Asia's Green Warrior. Thank you for joining us today, Renard. Well, thanks pretty for having me. It's really, uh, it's really exciting to have you on the show. And uh, we've got a list of questions really that we want to ask you. Um, because I think the efforts and the work that you've been doing is incredibly important, um, especially in this current time. Um, so Dr. Renard, to start us off really, tell us a bit about your background. How did you start your journey in climate action? Yeah, I mean, it's a long story to be honest, but I'm just gonna try to summarize this. I actually grew up in a small town in Kuantan along the east coast of peninsula Malaysia. And I guess ever since I was a kid, right, I've actually been exposed to uh, flood events, uh, having had to evacuate uh, myself together with my family, I think um, almost once every three or four years. Uh, so much so that it sort of felt, you know, that it was sort of a normalized childhood. And I guess ever since I was a kid, I was always asking those big questions, right? Like, why does this happen so often to people like us, right? Uh, especially those that are living in the uh, East Coast. Um, I guess one question led to another. Uh, I went to university, I pursued a degree in civil and environmental engineering, uh, got exposed to, you know, like learning about the climate crisis. And then also I, what was a revelation for me is the fact that, you know, the climate crisis is man-made. Uh, you know, it's attributed to a lot of human activities through the different uh, industries that we're involved with. In fact, almost every single activity emits some sort of carbon, right, into the atmosphere, which uh, further exacerbates uh, global warming. So, and, and I guess, you know, one thing led to another. So, you know, like it's just sort of just solidified, right, my commitment and my sense of purpose and wanting to pursue a career uh, in, in this area and to make a difference as much as I can. That's really interesting. And you spoke about um, your childhood in Kuantan and having sort of gone through all these um, I guess, disasters that, you know, so some people would think were natural disasters, but were actually, in the end, man-made. Um, so in, in that sort of area that you lived in, in Kuantan, was that um, something that people had knowledge of, that, you know, the events that were happening to them were actually caused by human um, activities? Yeah, so I guess back then when, you know, a lot of people that I spoke to when I started asking, you know, like, why, why does this event happen so frequently? I guess a lot of them would just tell you that it's an act of God, that there's nothing much that you can do about it. Um, and I guess that's also a bit tricky because I guess when you look at the situation in Malaysia, uh, we have quite a bit of a mixed bag in terms of people who are well aware of what's really happening versus those who have no knowledge, you know, like whatsoever about uh, the, the climate crisis. So we have quite a broad spectrum of, of people in this space. Well, thank you for that. I think that is um, something that is important, especially in, um, in a society like ours in Malaysia. I think we really do have to um, balance, you know, beliefs as well as knowledge and 
information that we get from the outside. Um, I want to bring us in slightly to, um, I guess, the current image that we get with um, climate action, um, as well as um, millennials and even um, people in Gen Z sort of um, viewing climate action and climate change in a sense. So over the last few years, obviously, there has been an increase in green awareness, um, a lot of it because of activists like um, Greta uh, Thunberg, obviously, uh, paving the way. So what do you make of this? Is climate activism sort of the new black in a sense? Yeah, I guess to a certain extent, and especially among millennials, I think this particular demographic, they are starting to realize that they might not actually be a future for them, like if we don't start acting on, on climate action. So if you see them protesting and marching out in the streets, it's really them demanding for hope, you know, and, and for them to have a sense that, you know, there is going to be a future for them. Because technically, there is no economy on, on a Tate planet. I think we all know that. And already, we are not on track towards, uh, you know, capping temperatures by 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is a magic number that we've been hearing a lot, right, coming out from the Paris Agreement. If we are unsuccessful in capping that, what that literally means is that, you know, we're in for much more catastrophic events, floods, droughts, wildfires, which has a knock-on effect. You know, like you will see crop use and a decline. You will see, you know, like more tropical diseases, right, um, surfacing, uh, which could be really scary because there could be things that we might be unprepared for. And uh, this not just affect people's livelihoods, uh, but it, essentially it's, it's, you know, like their, their own health and safety. Yeah, so that's really interesting because you, you've brought up sort of, um, you know, the Paris Agreement and obviously internationally, you know, the work that has been done. And I guess if we were to bring it home a little bit to Malaysia, I guess um, lots of us are talking about the 12th Malaysia plan at the moment and how um, it seems as though green growth has been prioritized in that plan. Um, what are your thoughts on this, on the 12th Malaysia plan and green growth? Um, yeah, I think, I think there's been a lot more emphasis uh, partly because I think the 12th Malaysian plan was crafted with inputs, right, from civil society organizations. So there's been a lot more emphasis around uh, not just climate mitigation, which is how you cut down emissions, but also the adaptation piece. So assuming that sea levels are already rising, what can we do about it, right, in, in order to prepare ourselves for, you know, all of this looming catastrophe. So um, the Trafalgar plan definitely is a little bit more ambitious, I guess, like on the greener side. There's a little bit more talk around, you know, the need to pump in investments into green technology, which is always welcome. Um, one of the things that people talk about, you know, especially given the COVID-19 pandemic lockdown that we've been facing, is, you know, people talk about wanting to recover as quickly as possible. But really, I think what needs to be the emphasis here is really on resetting completely. So, you know, moving from a heavy reliance on fossil fuels to actually renewables. And in order to do that, you know, you need a lot of investments. So I think the travel agent plan is timely to a certain extent because it does look into all of this uh, areas, much needed areas. And would you say that um, in order for us to, I guess, move towards um, using renewable sources and I guess uh, to sort of move in that direction, which is the right direction, um, would you say that it's feasible in a society like ours, um, you know, where I guess you would say that, you know, the usage of cars and car ownership is incredibly high in, in a country like ours because cars are incredibly 
um, affordable. Would you say that it is possible in our country? I, I would say that it's possible, but it would take you know a whole of government, whole of society approach, literally a whole village to, to make this uh, happen. Um, I think that the thing with Malaysia is that predominantly our primary energy use is still very heavily reliant on fossil fuels. Oil and I mean, we are essentially an oil and gas uh, country. And a lot of kids growing up, you know, like they, they, they have this mindset whereby, you know, when they grow up, like what they should be going into is petroleum engineering, because that's where, you know, uh, the money is. It's a lucrative career. So there is a bit of that mindset here like in, in, in Malaysia. But I think things are starting to change. You know, people are opening up, people are having uh, dialogues, conversation around, you know, like what's going to happen to the planet, right? If we keep pumping up in, you know, like CO2 into the atmosphere and people are starting to wake up to the fact that, you know, coal-powered plants, uh, you know, the oil and gas industry is not going to be sustainable, right? In, in the long future, which is why Malaysia has also made a commitment, right? To phase out, completely co-powered plants in, in the near future, which bodes very well uh, to the, you know, like green renewable agenda. But I think what also needs to happen is education. Uh, one of the things that I've been trying to advocate and fight for is to make climate education mandatory, not just uh, in primary and, and secondary schools. Uh, but that hasn't, you know, to be completely honest, I think that hasn't really gained a lot of traction uh, here. Uh, because I think Awareness is one thing, but also being able to explore innovative solutions to address uh, climate crisis is really where I think activism 2.0 needs to be. And, and a lot of this, you know, like great ideas are, you know, supposed to be championed by uh, millennials and, and youths. Well, that's really interesting. I'm, I'm, actually an inter, um, I'm actually a teacher in an international school. And um, I guess in that sense, um, you know, because we are an international school, the curriculum that we teach um, is based from, you know, the UK and, and, you know, some elements from other parts of the world. And I think a school like ours does provide that avenue for, you know, teaching sustainable goals, for example, teaching um, children about, um, I guess, green awareness, um, like, as you mentioned. But um, when I think about my time in, in, you know, state schools, public schools in Malaysia, I, you know, I don't think that was really something that um, I had much awareness of or was even really talked about in any way. Um, and, you know, not that it is a criticism in any way. I think we are a developing society. We always will be. And um, I think it is important, though, that we take, you know, those steps from the ground up, I guess, in terms of students and starting it now. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I do want to, you know, because we were talking about mindset there for a minute about, you know, how Malaysians view, um, you know, climate action and climate change. Um, but if I were to make it just slightly controversial here, um, some researchers have actually described um, sustainable development as greenwashing. Um, and I would like to know your opinion on this. What do you think about this line of thought? Um, for sure. I think what has been really interesting is the fact that, you know, with COP26 coming up in, in November in Glasgow, what, one of the things that we're observing is there are a lot of corporations that have come up and made bold commitments, saying that they want to be carbon neutral, they want to achieve uh, net zero by 2030, 2040, 2050, uh, whatever timeline that I've set. But I think what's really important is not just making uh, this empty promises, right? This uh, empty pledges, but also showing us the way, like what is the proper roadmap in order to get that? You know, how will co these corporations that have, 
you know, so boldly made this commitment, planning to make that shift. Like what sort of investments are they planning to make, right? Are they going to upskill their workforce? Uh, you know, like who are they going to partner with? Like what amount of, of investment is going to be pumped in, right? To change uh, their old ways. So I think where we don't have clarity with is the how. We know, you know, you know, we know the what, like what they intend to do, but there's not a lot of clarity around, around the, the how are they going to be doing that. And I think that's where, you know, the concept of greenwashing kicks in. A lot of activists, especially, looks at all of this empty pledges or half promises, as they call it. And they say that, oh, okay, like you have, you have made all of these promises, but you can't convince us, right, that you're actually doing something about, about it, right? And, and that's where greenwashing is. I think, and, and, but I think increasingly people are becoming more educated. So they are realizing that empty promises won't, uh, it, it's just not enough. You know, I think Greta Thunberg calls it the blah, blah, blah. You know, you can make all of this, you know, like both statements, you know, like appear on, on mainstream media, you know, on Facebook, Twitter, co coverage by, you know, uh, major newspapers. But at the, at the end of the day, you will be caught out. Like if you, don't actually have a solid plan as to how you intend to achieve all of these targets that, that you've mentioned. Yeah, that's that's really an interesting point. And I think when uh, Greta Thunberg um, had that, uh, you know, made that speech, really, I think that was really when we all sort of woke up and realized that, uh, you know, in a, in a certain way or, you know, to a certain extent, we've been cheated in a lot of ways uh, by these big corporations. Um, and I guess, why do you think this big, um, these big, uh, Big corporations actually make these promises. What is it that um, is in it for them by making those promises and not quite um, fulfilling them? I think it's pressure uh, first and foremost. There's obviously a lot of interest on the green climate agenda uh, leading up to COP26. Uh, there's been a lot of national level commitments that have been made. So prior to you know, I mean, leading up to you know, like COP26, there was actually a report that was issued by. Uh, the UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework of Convention and Climate Change, they did an analysis of the global commitments that different countries have made. And they realized that we were only able to cut down emissions by 1%. But in order to keep the 1.5 degrees ambition alive, we actually need to achieve 41 times that number. So a lot of countries have, you know, started ramping up this national commitments. I mean, you have also seen that in, in Malaysia. Our government actually made a commitment saying that, you know, we want to be carbon neutral, sorry, to achieve net zero, right, by 2050, and to be carbon neutral at least by, by a certain uh, date. But can we actually do it is, you know, like a, a big uh, question mark. But when countries start making such commitments, it trickles down to corporates as well. Like if you pressured into making such similar pledges without necessarily knowing how they, they would actually do it, but they're just pressured by you know the operating environment that, that they're in. And also for them to look that you know they are actually doing, attempting something along those lines, right? Um, so a lot of it I think has got to do with more, more of reputation management, right? As opposed to actually, you know wanting to do it for, for change. Yeah, and I think that's an incredibly important point. Um, you know, is it a facade or is it really something that, you know, they genuinely truly want to achieve um, with those goals? And I guess um, only time will tell uh, what happens with that. And, you know, hopefully we, you know, we achieve a more positive side on that note. 
Um, yeah, of course, I would but also, time, time is of the essence. And uh, we're really absolutely. Time. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Time is completely of the essence. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you, Renard, because I think you're a really interesting person, especially with the work that you've been doing, um, you know, in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia in particular. Um, so I guess one would say that you're a man that wears many hats. Um, but what do you aspire to achieve through your various roles in climate activism? Yeah, I think for one, uh, being on this journey is obviously a personal one. So as I've mentioned that, you know, I've personally witnessed, I've experienced, you know, like flood events, and it's something that I wouldn't wish on anyone. Uh, one of the things that I did realize was how interconnected, right, my personal story is uh, to everyone else who has, who has sort of experienced some sort of catastrophic uh, event as a result of, of, of the climate crisis. And for me, I think if we're able to bring that down, if we have any hope, right, of keeping humanity alive, I think first and foremost, we do have to, you know, try and keep, you know, the 1.5 degree ambition alive. What that means basically is that there's so much that we need to do in terms of cutting down on emissions, but also preparing, right, marginalized communities, right, to face and confront a world uh, that, that is going to require a lot of more, that, that, that's more resilient, I guess, to a certain extent, which is really a goal that I'm, you know, constantly thinking about. Um, hence, my work has also brought me to actually working with uh, what, what I call climate pruners, right? People who are, you know, a hybrid of entrepreneurs who are constantly looking for innovative solutions, right, to tackle the challenges of the climate crisis. So really exploring things like, you know, like EV, for example, uh, you know, the promotion of electric uh, vehicles, charging stations, how can you improve more, uh, get more renewables into our grid through investments into renewable energy, among many other things. Well, that's amazing. I think the work that you've been doing and I guess the journey that you're still on um, is an incredibly important journey. And um, I guess you represent um, a lot of youth and millennials. And I guess you're at the forefront there in, in achieving those um, goals. But I do wonder, um, as a millennial activist, do you find that your journey is a lonely one? I mean, as a, I guess millennials, we, we would say are concerned with socialism, employment, um, some, and now especially with the pandemic, employment. So do you find that, they, that your, you know, perhaps your journey might be a little bit um, lonely in any way? Well, to be frank, uh, not so much. I feel like I'm always, I feel like there's always a group of people that I can fall back to. In fact, there's actually a whole network of uh, climate advocates, activists in Southeast Asia um, who are skilled, right, in different areas. You have people who are, you know, like have, have experience in policymaking, uh, people who are involved in things like climate financing. And I feel like I'm just constantly learning from different uh, folks within this network. And, and it's a very tight-knitted group to a certain extent. Like we're always... Um, you, you know, like providing each other with, you know, the type of moral support that, that is needed. Um, and, and we know that the powers that, that need to be, right, like the people that we are uh, trying to sort of go against, right, <laughs> to a certain extent, especially when you're trying to fight for a climate policy, a climate act to be enacted within a country, it's not going to be an easy journey. Uh, but, you know, I've, I, so far, uh, I've, I've been able to sort of just garner support uh, from, from this group of network that, that I've been involved with, which has been great. <laughs> I can imagine. I think it's um, having a group. Um, and I know uh, what I can tell from, you know, climate activists, there is a, a, a real fire in them. And I think that's an incredibly, 
that's a that's an incredibly great thing to see i think to have um to see some some people that are so passionate about um the earth and you know wanting to bring us all into that um have you found any similarities between you and some of them um perhaps you know because of the background um you know how that might be different any similarities there or differences yeah i guess one of my observation is the fact that we are very clear on our sense of purpose or why we're doing what we're doing uh so so we're connected on on the why right you know the climate crisis is the defining issue of our generation and something that we want to fight for where we depart though is in terms of the how how do we actually approach it and it's actually a very contextual thing uh so just to give you an example right uh in singapore for example they have uh, embarked on um floating uh, solar pvs uh solar pv technology but this is probably not something that you can implement in the philippines for example because they are faced with typhoons in in their archipelago so their solutions as to how they would approach this would be completely different from what what we have in, in singapore um so so there are nuances like and differences like like that depending on context uh but you know like we share a similar aspiration that we are all working on this issue together and if all of you were to sort of think about um you know bringing your ideology as well as your um your voice forward to millennials what would you say or how can you sort of make it attractive in a sense how do how do you make climate action and climate activism attractive to other millennials yeah i think this is a, this is truly a million dollar question i've been speaking to a lot of parents to be completely honest and asian parents typically have this mentality that uh you you know like you either have to be a doctor an engineer an accountant or or you, you know you're seen as 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 a, as a loser to a certain extent and a lot of parents are actually quite concerned when their kids actually you know like tell them that oh they want to enroll in environmental science or or environmental engineering for example because they're worried that their kids will probably end up just being tree huggers and 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 working with it, with an angel so i think all of that needs to change i think i think that perception we need to show the way right so as i've mentioned earlier there needs to be a clear transition roadmap moving away from fossil fuels like to a renewable greener future what that means essentially is that we need to be able to create and generate jobs that are going to be attractive enough um and and they are and and to be you know to to be completely frank they are uh even if you look at waste management for example uh as an issue that we're trying to tackle a lot of the waste typically just end up in landfills they're just dumping them but if you think of of a creative and innovative way to reuse and uh you know recycle upcycle your waste what you would need is actually people to start creating an inventory right a segregation of different waste you need people to think about creative innovative manufacturing ways to 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 repurpose a lot of this waste so it creates new economies in, in that process and i think that's where where we need to be uh to be to be more innovative uh but of course it's easier said than done a lot of people are used to that traditional let's just follow what the typical norm is that's not challenge the status quo uh which is very you know you know which is something that I, sometimes i feel agitated by because i feel like there's so much potential right for us to really change the narrative and the fact that we don't have time right to 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 do this it's it's yeah it, it just concerns me me a whole lot and you know i think it's really interesting that you brought up the fact of i guess the asian mindset or you know the you know mindset in this region really um about you know parents wanting their kids to be you know a b and c and you know not everything else is is a complete failure which um and i think in a way i guess our mindset is so and we're quite hard 
you know, like we're, we're quite strong with our mindsets that, you know, it has lasted for generations, I think, at this point. You know, every generation, we still have that pressure. Um, but do you think millennials themselves, if they were to sort of go against, you know, the wishes of their parents, if you will, do you think that they have that interest to, to invest in, in, in a field like this? I think this is definitely something that, that needs to happen. But unfortunately, if you look at the demand, right, for environmental sciences courses, just to share with you, I think one of the public universities in Malaysia actually decided to cancel an environmental science uh, degree course because the uptake just wasn't high. There, there just wasn't enough uh, de demand for it. Um, and, and for me, I, I was upset because this was at a time when, you know, the government had just launched, uh, you know, like their big, bold, ambitious plans to move towards, you know, renewable energy. But at the same time, you need to create a whole pipeline of talented people in our country. I mean, you know, you know, exporting uh, talent uh, isn't going to be sustainable. I mean, it may be for, for the short term, but in the long term, it's something that, that we need to change. Um, for me, I've, I've been lucky. I've had parents who were, who were extremely supportive. I've even had teachers who, who were extremely supportive. Like, you know, I could tell them, I mean, before, you know, like environmentalism was even a, you know, like a, a trendy or sexy topic, right? Uh, it was something that I've always been, you know, very inspired, you know, like to, to sort of venture in. But I was really trying to look for role models, right, in a, in a country who were actually championing all of these goals, but I couldn't find, okay, when a lot of them were, were Western figures, I guess, people who have been there, done that. And I think we need more of that, like a lot of uh, role models in, 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 the, um, in the industry even, uh, because industries are changing as environmentalism comes up to the fore. You're even seeing bankers, right? People who are typically concerned about just uh, financial uh, figures, revenues, they're starting to talk about, oh, how, how do we actually embed sustainability as part of our risk assessment, right? Before we actually start loading out capital to um, you know, potential clients, what sort of sustainability risk would come as a result, uh, as a result of that? So the landscape is definitely changing. Like even property developers, it's not enough to just develop uh, houses, right, uh, using concrete uh, and cement. They're starting to question about what sort of ecosystem can they create that is low carbon, you know, that promotes low carbon lifestyles, right? Um, yeah, so, so jobs, careers are definitely changing. And I think in Malaysia, we need to evolve, right, with, with, with this as well. Yeah, and I think one thing that I do really love about our society is that I think we are in a sense, we are open to change. And I think we do, we do take in a lot of feedback and, you know, it does change and it evolves. And I think that is, you know, one of the great things about our Malaysian society. And yeah, and I, I would love to see in a couple of years, if I ever, you know, get to that point where, you know, some of the kids that we have today would, you know, go on to becoming, um, you know, just really at the forefront of, you know, climate change and um, climate action. And that would be something that, you know, would, would sort of come to a full circle, I think, if we were able to achieve that. Um, so we've almost come to the end of the show, and um, I've, I've got a question that I always ask uh, my viewers at the end, and I've, I've sort of modified it slightly for this um, episode, really, for climate change and climate action. But what is one myth about climate action that you disagree with? Um, a myth? Well, I mean, I mean, I guess a lot of people say, say that, you know, climate change or the climate crisis uh, it's something that is so complex, right? It's so complex, it's so complicated that it's not something that an individual can make a difference in. And I beg to defer. I, I think if anything, 
um, you know, it's our own individual actions that, that can truly make the difference, given the fact that collectively we have got so much power. And, and, and one example that, that I'll give is that food waste, food waste um, actually contributes to about 8%, right, of global emissions after US and China. And when we think about our own consumption, daily consumption, uh, every day, believe it or not, like in Malaysia alone, we produce about 17 tons of food waste daily, which is enough to fill up about seven swimming pools and feed about 2.2 million population. So there's a lot that we can change, right? In, yeah. in our, our day-to-day lifestyles in order to bring down this emissions. Just think about, you know, the food that we purchase, make sure that we don't waste it. And if we have extra, make sure that we share it, right? With our neighbors or people who, who truly need it. So consume, right? And have diets that are appropriate uh, to you, right? As, a, as an individual. And these are just some small changes that we can take. And it's often the small changes that actually lead to, you know, much bigger impacts that, that I've seen. I think that's I think that's really important because I think when we when we do talk about um, climate action, where we're kind of unsure about um, what it is that you know that can make a difference, and I think a lot of us has that you know we have that mindset that um, oh for us to be able to achieve this or oh, we would never be able to do it because you know there are you know it's too complex for us to even begin to understand. So I mean that's a really good example that you gave there at the end, in fact about just food waste and how we could perhaps just limit that. And that could, you know, be us making one big change um, in our society. Um, thank you so much, Renat. I really did enjoy this episode. And I think we brought up some really important themes in, um, in this episode. And, you know, I do hope that um, I wish you all the best in your journey. And I think you, are, you have already achieved so much um, in, this, uh, in this journey of yours. And I hope to see, um, you know, all of us moving towards your direction um, in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks, Priti. Thank you.